Kiswahili ya Channel Africa ikitangaza kutoka Johannesburg It is the start of a new week. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onelin Sinsi, Tracy Boomgaard and Musiburi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. There's deadly unrest in Sudan as masses continue to oppose the military. There have been numerous attacks in Mali in recent months and Zimbabwe youth stand their ground in their fight against corruption. In your economic news, South Africa's revenue services has warned taxpayers to submit their returns or face dire consequences. And in sport, more nations looking to qualify for the last 16 at the Africa Cup of Nations tournament. On Lentzinsi, hello, how are you? How is yours? Minus, okay, it's all right. Um, so, as a freelancer, of course, we always look forward to tax season. Definitely. Uh, South African Revenue Service, Services saying that taxpayers should submit their tax returns or face dire consequences. We've seen a lot of, um, especially in South Africa, a lot of well-known yeah. people, a lot of celebrities getting into trouble for not submitting th- their tax returns. I think what we need to be aware of is SARS will find you. If you don't find it, it will find you. I guess it will. But I also think that probably it's because of the, the lifestyle that people choose to post on social media and, and, and speak about. Yeah, but also their, just their record. Well, because well, my sister's also in trouble with SARS because for years she's worked oh. and she just did not submit. And about 10 years later, SARS has found her. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I think for me, the biggest thing is people who are able to be paid in cash for certain jobs. Because um, now there's, there's, there's a, uh, a disconnect with regards to that. But anyway, we are going to be uh, finding out a little bit more about that from uh, Tracy Boongard in the Economic News. But right now, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is on Lensinsi with your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Hundreds of people continue to gather in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, to protest against the ruling military. A day after at least seven people died in clashes between security services and protesters, members of the crowd say they came out after residents found the bodies of three young men riddled with bullets and dressed in civilian clothes. At least 600 people blocked off the main road leading to White Nile Bridge and set up barricades as riot police looked on. Sudan's military overthrew President Omar Bashir on April 11. After months of demonstrations against his rule, talks between opposition groups collapsed after members of the security services raided the sit-in protest camp outside the defense ministry on June 3. Six Turkish citizens detained in Libya by forces loyal to Commander Khalifa Haftar have been released. Turkey supports the internationally recognized government in Tripoli. The foreign ministry said on Sunday that the eastern Libyan militia would become a legitimate target if the detainees were not released immediately. Sri Lankan President Maithripala Sirisena has accused the European Union of interfering in the internal affairs of his country. The EU had urged him not to reinstate the death penalty. He said EU diplomats had threatened him with tariffs if Sri Lanka went ahead with executions. Last week, President Sirisena said he had signed the death warrant of four drug offenders but did not say when the executions would be carried out. Protesters in Hong Kong have continued their efforts to smash their way into the Legislative Council building using metal bars. Pro-government politicians have complained that radical violent elements are undermining social order. Thousands of people have also marched in a peaceful pro-democracy rally to coincide with the anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Chinese rule. The BBC's Nick Big. 
This anniversary has turned into a nightmare for the Beijing-backed Hong Kong government. The city's legislative council is still surrounded by thousands of furious young protesters, passing metal poles and barriers to the front of the crowd, where a hardcore pummels the glass of the building's entrances. So far, the police have held back, but have now issued a warning. It seems to have fallen on deaf ears. This may have started last month as a protest against a specific piece of legislation, but many young demonstrators talk of revolution and a future beyond the control of the Chinese authorities. And lastly, about 50 school children have been injured and three people killed in a car bomb attack in the Afghan capital of Kabul. The blast took place in an area housing government buildings, including the Defense Ministry officials. The Afghan Interior Ministry confirmed that two gunmen who had stormed the building after the blast had been shot dead and that clearing operations is underway. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Zinzi. Seventeen oh six Central African time. Uh, let's get on with the show. Starting off uh, with uh, killings in Sudan, where fresh confrontation between demonstrators and the ruling military council's rapid support forces has resulted in the killing of at least seven people in the capital, Khartoum. James Shimanyula filed this report. Demonstrations staged in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, have ended tragically. Reports from there say at least seven civilians who participated in the demonstrations lost their lives when soldiers of the rapid support forces opened fire on them. The reports say dozens of others sustained injuries. Some of them were treated and discharged while others were admitted to various hospitals for treatment. According to Sulaiman Abdi Jabba, under secretary in Sudan's Ministry of Health, more than 180 people were injured during the demonstrations. Jabbar did not say whether or not members of the Rapid Support Force were among those killed, but said 10 of them were injured. 27 civilians, he told the state-run Sudan news agency, suffered gunshot wounds. The express purpose of the demonstrations was to push the ruling military council to hand power to civilians. In a statement released to local and international journalists, the Central Committee of the Sudanese Doctors said that the number of injured has reached over 100. The doctors disclosed that security forces used tear gas and live bullets to disperse the demonstrators in various parts of the capital Khartoum. Before the seven people were killed, they had joined the demonstrators who chanted slogans against the Transitional Military Council. They reportedly waved banners condemning violence against the demonstrators. To get a clear picture of fresh developments in Sudan, I found Ahmed El-Turabi, son of the late Hassan El-Turabi, one of the fiercest Critics of toppled President Omar Hassan el-Bashir. Ahmed el-Turabi sums up the current situation in Sudan's capital Khartoum. Today it is calm, everybody is going to work, it is normal today. But yesterday there were demonstrations by this uh, new front, Forces of uh, Freedom and Change, FSC. They held demonstrations yesterday and uh, five people have died in Khartoum, including uh, three soldiers and two civilians, and one civilian died in Akbara. Kasala, that Turabi is referring to, is one of several cities outside Khartoum where civilians lost their lives. Apart from demonstrations taking place in Kasala, in eastern Sudan region, they were also reported in Gudaref, Hashim, Al-Griba, and Haifa in the same region. Other demonstrations were reported in Atabra, in River Nile State, El Obeid in North Kordofan and Edamazin in the marginalized Blue Nile state. Still on the issue of the current situation in Sudan, I posed the following question to Ahmed Turabi. Looking at uh, the situation so far, do you think uh, the 
situation will stabilize in the days to come or there is still a rift between people calling for civilian government and the military council? I don't think it will uh, worsen, but it will not uh, normalize. It is stable already, but it will not normalize and proceed uh, to a better uh, situation. This is because the people calling for civilian rule are now divided into two main groups. The Nationalist uh, Coalition uh, Party, and then there is this forces of freedom and change. The forces of freedom and change are mainly former opposition, fierce opposition, mainly leftist parties, with one exception, which is the Oma party led by uh, Imam Farid al-Mahdi. The other forces are led by all the ex-rebellion movements that have made peace agreements with uh, uh, the past regime or the last regime, and also the uh, Democratic Unionist Party and the Popular Congress Party, the Islamist Party that was in opposition. The crucial question that arises is whether or not Opposition leaders teaming up with demonstrators will make a breakthrough in their demonstration mission. I also posed this question to Turabi. If you can summarize, do you think the opposition will succeed? The opposition will succeed only if they agree. I am sorry to say if the opposition does not agree, they will not succeed. And the military ruling council will have to establish its own civilian government and give it power. That was Ahmed El Turabi, son of the late Sudan's veteran opposition leader Hassan El Turabi. The seven deaths that have been reported in Sudan at the hands of the country's notorious rapid support forces comes nearly four weeks since the killing of more than 100 demonstrators occurred in Khartoum on the 3rd of last month. Instability has engulfed Sudan since the ruling military junta toppled the government of President Omar el-Bashir at the beginning of April this year. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. There have been numerous attacks in Mali in recent months, some ethically driven, some carried out by jihadist groups. The BBC's Louise Devast looks at what is behind Mali's massacres. Just in June, several dozen people were killed in multiple attacks in central Mali. And it wasn't the first time. In April, the entire government was replaced after a massacre in the same region. To understand the current crisis, we need to go back to 2012. That year, separatists and groups linked to Al-Qaeda took over the northern part of Mali. The French army intervened to dislodge the extremists occupying the north. But they weren't entirely successful though, and new armed groups started springing up in other parts of the country. There are also long-standing tensions that have gotten worse. The roots go back a really long way, but to explain briefly, members of the Dogon ethnic group say that the Fulanis are linked to Islamist groups, a claim which many reject. And the Fulanis say that the Dogon people form militias to attack them. They say they only act in self-defense. But what is being done about the increasing violence? President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita and his government are under pressure to resolve the situation. They have asked and received military support from the French, from the United Nations, from neighboring countries. But some say that a different strategy is urgently needed, one that addresses unemployment, climate change, human rights abuses and corruption in Mali. Innocent civilians are paying the price, and if nothing changes, the crisis could spread further. So that uh, report was by the BBC's Louise DeVast. Zimbabwean youths have piled pressure on the president, Emerson Nagwagwa, to deal with corruption with the aim to end the economic decay. This comes after the government, it comes after uh, government banned the use of U.S. dollars and other foreign currencies, putting an end to multi-currency systems. However, before that currency decision, Zimbabwe has been under severe pressure from inflation, price increases, cash shortages, unemployment, and a lot more that have affected youths. More from Simon Muchemwa. A few days ago, ZANU-PF youths dropped a bomb that left President Emerson Nangagwa with an egg on his face. 
The youth demanded serious investigations into the corruption allegations that involve senior party officials such that a commission of inquiry is to be set soon. Elsewhere, Zimbabwe Young People Forum is also piling pressure on Mnangagwa to act on corruption or face street protest. Zimbabwe is having economic challenges that has left the majority poorer. Cash, fuel shortages, food price increases, non-availability of electricity have left Zimbabweans wondering if their future is certain. In a country with 67% youth population, unemployment is also estimated at within 90%. However, the ban of the use of the US dollar and other foreign currencies has prompted Zimbabwean youth to demand action. Tinashe Nyanguzu, spokesperson of the Youth Forum, had this to say. For as long the voice of people is not heard and embraced, and we do not have political and economic stability in our country, our dreams upon Zimbabwe will never be fulfilled. As the young people of Zimbabwe, we say, stop killing our future, for the future depends on us. We stand not against our government, our government, but against injustice and corruption that is controlling the system. We stand for our voice. We believe a republic is a democratic country, so we influence our decision we have made to speak out so that you hear our concern. Why people are being stopped to exercise their rights, our rights. Injustice and corruption is bringing tension within our country, yet everyone is being stopped to protest against such activities. Are we then under the dictatorship or democracy? Mr. President, we want to know and to know the reason why we are not allowed to disagree on what we do not want or tolerate. The Zimbabwean youth have complained genuine matters are being politicized such that a number of youths fear for their lives and can't raise their voices, Tinashe said. Mr. President, we the majority have come to a point we can no longer hold on this economic crisis, hiking of prices and current instability, all because of the political tension that our government valued much rather than the economy. We have no way to run. The voice of people demands immediate effective reforms and these reforms should be conducted with, with immediate effect to accommodate development and humanitarian action in Zimbabwe towards our bleeding economy. We cannot be united in doing business with the international community when we, the people of Zimbabwe, are not united because of the politics that have divided the country as it stands today. This has drive the young people to voice out our concern and we find it a good way to utilize the advantage of the, of the unique image program the social media movement to call for emergency deliverance upon the surrounding political and economic tension. The pressure against the Zimbabwean president comes amid a call by Zimbabwean pressure groups for a mass action against the ban of the use of the U.S. dollar and other currencies. Zimbabwe Young People Forum is threatened to strike if the president does not meet their demands. If none of these concerns did not reach our demands, we are going for a street march. Mr. President, we believe our Zimbabwe is only readiness to deliver the blessings that God has put upon the people of this land. But how can that be when that opportunity seems to be amiss and everything is being politicized, especially corruption and injustice are controlling this system? There are so many unfunctional and underfunctional facilities out there, barren lands, mines, and farms, and some are being politicized, yet other youths have no jobs and resources to work on rebuilding the bleeding nation that is going through hardship and sufferings. Mr. President, our lives depend in our hands, but if the situation becomes worse as it stands today, we speak, it becomes a voice of concern. This could be the best time to act for the Zimbabwean President Mnangagwa as the Auditor General last week produced a damning report alleging millions of dollars of government resources were stolen. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. 
Freed Cameroon opposi- main opposition party leader John Frundi says he warned separatists fighting for the creation of an English-speaking state in Cameroon to desist from killing innocent people they are pretending to represent. Frundi was speaking over the week and uh, after over the weekend after he was released by his abductors who spent close to 30 hours with him in the bush. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaka reports from Yaoundé. <laughs> Supporters of Cameroon main opposition party leader John Frunte sing at his Bamendan Tarikon residence to celebrate his freedom from captivity. They say they have been very worried since their father and leader of the Social Democratic Front party, the SDF, was kidnapped and are now very happy that he has returned alive. Among them is SDF lawyer Su Fu. It's not only me being happy, I think the SDF family and Cameroonians as a whole are happy because where we are now is a very trying moment. The Social Democratic Front leader looked tired and exhausted when he arrived at the Stadikon residence in the English-speaking northwestern town of Bamenda. He had wounds on his head. Frundi says he was rough handled by his abductors. They dragged me like a pig. I was nothing le- better than a pig. And uh, when they put me into their car, shuffled me into their car and we're now going, if you look here carefully, they knocked me with their gun here about five times. They barred off the gun. When they knocked, I said, please, you cannot knock me with your gun. He still knocked. I said, you're an idiot to be knocking me like that. What have I done? Frundi says the fighters asked him to withdraw all of his party representatives at Cameroon's parliament and senate and to withdraw all of his councillors and mayors from the areas they control. He says they asked him never to participate in any elections organized by the central government in Yaoundé. I say, why is it only the SDF parliamentarians? I say, because those are parliamentarians who have faith and confidence in when they come out, we'll know what to do with the rest. Frundi said he told them that it was a wrong thing to do because it is at Parliament that they can raise their voices for the national and international community to know the wrong things the government does and that it is from there that the plight of all Cameroonians, including the separatists, is discussed. John Frundi says he warned the separatist fighters against killing the people they pretend to fight for and destroying their property. He says it was wrong to kidnap them and ask for ransom and to hold their communities hostage. Like I told them in the camp, please can you give us a human face to the struggle, to the, to, to the fight you are fighting. You, you want to take care of the people, be friendly to the people. Let them see a different type of administration coming and not an administration that You have to cut fingers, you have to cut hands, you have to abduct people. The chairman of the Social Democratic Front was kidnapped on Friday afternoon by armed men who shot his bodyguard on the leg before taking him to an unknown destination. The bodyguard is responding to treatment at a hospital in Bamenda. Civil society groups, political parties and his family members condemned the act and called for his immediate and unconditional release. It was the second time in over two months that the chairman was kidnapped. Conflict in Cameroon, a majority French-speaking nation, broke out in October 2017 when Anglophone militants declared an independent state in the northwest and southwest regions and baptized it Ambazonia, claiming it was the newest state in the world. The UN has said the death toll since the start of the fighting had topped 2,000. Around 530,000 people have fled the fighting. The separatists say they will make the zone ungovernable until the central government packs out from what they now call their territory. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. 
South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has congratulated the G20 summit on its focus on implementing the G20's compact with Africa. Uh, the G20 compact with Africa was initiated under the German G20 presidency in 2017 to assist African countries to promote private investment from European countries and the West. Excuse me. A few countries have signed this initiative, including Benin, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Egypt, Ethiopia, Ghana, Guinea, Morocco, Rwanda, Senegal, Togo and Tunisia. Dr. Oscar van Heerden, a political commentator and scholar of international relations, says that although the compact is good for Africa, he says that the biggest challenge is that Africa doesn't have a diverse uh, commodities and products to offer the international market. Takab Fende, uh, an independent investment specialist and owner of African Dominion. The G20 every year has a different presidency Mm -hmm. and in 2017 under the Germany presidency um, they came up with this notion of African compacts. Mm -hmm. Um, Twelve countries have signed up with this. Um, South Africa is not a signature. There's no any other reason except that it's a much more diverse economy. It has independent agreements, trade agreements with the European Union Mm. and with the the United States or Goa, as well as with China, and Mm -hmm. so they decided to keep out of the compacts. But the compact's intention is to make it a more attractive for investment, Mm -hmm. and particularly private sector Mm -hmm. investment. It's not so much government to government. Mm -hmm. It's about saying to private companies in the European Union and and elsewhere in the West to say it's time to have these agreements with African countries and, and invest. Since then, there has been two evaluations done. Yeah. Two reports are available for those that are interested. And they broadly speak to it being positive and that there has been positive impacts by these compacts. Um, of course, we can go much further, as always. But I think the, the starting point is that a number of countries are indicating on the continent that they are benefiting from these agreements yeah. and that it is a good thing. And I think that uh, Germany would want that. And the commitment at this G20 was to expand that and to further entrench those kinds of commitments. The thing about these agreements is that various countries are still very dominant in terms of one or two commodities mm-hmm. only. Mm-hmm. They don't have very diverse this, yeah, product econ- economies yeah. mm-hmm. um, or market. And so that is a bit of a negative. It mm-hmm. does mean that you know this particular country can only provide cocoa beans, mm-hmm. that country can only provide oil, and that is a stumbling block. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that countries in Africa, economies in Africa, really need to try and diversify and try mm-hmm. and open up their markets beyond just those main commodities uh, that is very extractive. But at the end of the day, there is positiveness with the compacts. Uh, Taka, your thoughts? So you look at the private equity, you look at the infrastructure plays, you look at the listed markets and um, the the emergence of a lot of Africa funds, funds that are focused on the African continent. It's not just investments and, you know, strongly agree with Dr. Van Heerden in terms of diversification of capabilities of a lot of these countries. And what investments coming into the Af- coming onto the African continent are looking at is to say, okay, fine, we do understand that there's a lot of return capability from an African continent, but there's a lot of work to be done on the governance side, for instance, you know, to actually bring a lot of the businesses on the African continent to investable status. So there's a lot of focus on the environment, a lot of focus on social, a lot of focus on the governance side, and I think a lot of infrastructure, a lot of foreign direct investment is focusing on saying, okay, fine, if we are to invest a lot of money onto the African continent, there has to be certain governance issues that are addressed. So I see a lot of the agreements that are coming into mm-hmm. place on the African continent with international partners as, as highly positive um, for the African continent. I still do believe that um, you know, we should also play a role in, in setting the path as well, setting whatever goes into those agreements. Mm-hmm. We must be more robust in terms of putting in place our own terms. That was Dr. Oscar van Heerden, a political commentator and scholar of international relations, and Taka Fende, an independent investment specialist and owner of African Dominion, and they were speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. The time is 17.32 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk for a quick update with regards to your news headlines.
Demonstration stations around capital Khartoum have ended tragically. Somalia, Somalia protested formally to Kenya after Nairobi referred to the self-proclaimed Republic of Somaliland as a country. And protesters in Hong Kong have smashed their way into the Legislative Council using metal poles. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Leaders of a 15-nation West African bloc have called for greater structural reforms as they step up efforts for the introduction of a shared currency aimed to be launched in the year 2020. In a statement issued at the end of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS Summit in Nigeria's capital Abuja on Saturday, the leaders said they had adopted ECO as the name of the planned currency. The bloc, which represents an estimated population of about 385 million people, has urged member states to do more to improve their performance as the deadline for the establishment of a monetary union approaches. But according to Dr. Ndongo Samba Sila, a Senegalese development economist, plans to launch the eco-currency are unrealistic and potentially disastrous for the region's economic economies. He spoke to Channel Africa earlier. It has been a dream, uh, let's say, um, which has been um, there for, let's say, at least um, for four decades. But at the same time, uh, the deadline is too tight. Uh, to, uh, 2020 is in six months. And according to the ministerial report of the ECOWAS, Economic Community of West African States, uh, no country respected the conversion criteria that are necessary to launch the ECO in, 2000, in 2018. No country. So that means that no country is ready yet in West Africa for the launching of the ECHO uh, because um, there has been a number of criteria regarding public deficits, uh, inflation rates, etc., uh, which have not been, uh, let's say, respected by, by any country in, the, in ECOWAS. And the second thing about if we omit the technical aspects is there's a, uh, let's say, political um, condition because Nigeria in 2017 said to the eight countries using the CFA franc, which is a colonial currency backed by the French Treasury, Nigeria said to the leaders of those countries, if you want to go to the uh, West African uh, single currency, you have to provide a divorce plan with the French Treasury. And until now, there has been any uh, um, divorce plan provided by those eight countries. That means that those countries are saying that they want to go to the West African single currency, but at the same time, they are not ready to break the links with the France and, the, let's say, the French Treasury. The ECOWAS chairman and Niger's president, Hamadou Isufu, says that there's a real firm political will to increase efforts ahead of the 2020 deadline for this uh, currency. What, in your view, needs to be done if people are going to be spending ECOWAS in 2020 as planned? You, you speak of a Davos plan as well. Yeah, in fact, uh, we have have to uh, distinguish clearly between what those head of states are, let's say, communicating publicly and the reality of the project. The reality of the project is that uh, there is no real political will from the countries using the CFA franc to break up the ties with the, um, the French trade. That means to get rid of the CFA franc. And uh, at the same time, uh, uh, you see that um, this um, um, eco project uh, does not make sense from an economic point of view. Why? Because if you want to uh, be a member of the um, of a currency union, you have to relinquish your fiscal sovereignty. Uh, if you do not relinquish your fiscal sovereignty, it doesn't work. And this is something uh, economists have been observing about the eurozone because the eurozone is an incomplete monetary uh, uh, currency union and it has let's say congenital defects and west african countries want to replicate the eurozone with all of its um, let's say flows and for me this would not be a good thing because um, what will happen in um, in a currency union like that is that you have just one single monetary policy for let's say uh, uh, 15 countries and uh, you see there are huge asymmetries between countries and also huge heterogeneity. Nigeria represents two-thirds of the original GDP and at least 
let's say, uh, half of the population. Nigeria is an oil exporter, whereas the most of the remaining countries are net oil importers. That means when the uh, uh, when it's good for Niger, Nigeria, it will not be as good in the remaining countries. So in those circumstances, you need a fiscal solidarity between the members of this same currency union for the union to work. If you don't have this fiscal solidarity, it could not work, and this is the experience of the Eurozone. But in the current term, let's say, a format of this eco-currency, there is no plan for, uh, let's say, uh, fiscal uh, solidarity. So this project could not work, and we have, uh, as Africans, to learn from the mistakes of the Eurozone. Moving away from economics and looking at conflict and violence now in West Africa, which has been a problem, I mean, Nigeria, case in point, uh, being seen as being dishonest in the issue of tackling the threats of militant group Boko Haram. Are security challenges going to be some of the factors that hold this back from happening in 2020? Uh, I do not think so. I do think that uh, what is much more important is the political will of the head of states. Because uh, if they genuinely want to go for this uh, single currency, they do not need, let's say, all this um, uh, convergence treaty because those convergence treaty have been, let's say, uh, put forward by the German so that the German will not, let's say, pay for others' bill. That was the, let's say, the, the rationale behind the setting up of those uh, convergence treaty. But in West Africa, we have mimicked, we have copied those uh, criteria, and mo- most of the countries are unable to. Um, to, to respect it. So uh, what is the main, uh, let's say, um, handicap is the lack of political will. And when I say political will, is the political will from the West African uh, states using a CFA franc to um, break the links with the French Treasury and also the political will from all those countries which want to be part of the eco zone uh, to uh, put in place uh, let's say, mechanism for fiscal solidarity, because without those mechanisms for fiscal solidarity, the eco-zone will, will not work. And that was Dr. Ndongo Sambasila, Senegalese development economist, on the line from Dakar in Senegal, talking to Asanda Beda. A spate of hate attacks since Hindu nationalists returned to power in May is spurring a rising tide of violence against Muslims in India. Assurances last week of the BJP party uh, government sounded hollow as hoodlums affiliated to the right-wing group roamed the streets with total impunity. More from our correspondent in New Delhi, Rana Sana. A Muslim boy was lynched in Jharkhand state. In Mumbai, a taxi driver was attacked and in Kolkata city, an Islamic scholar was thrown off a train. Mihira Sood is a vocal rights lawyer. It is not just a question of this particular government or leaders of this government. It is a question of who have they emboldened and who are they continuing to embolden by their selective silence on issues, by the kind of narrative they choose to spin by trying to justify mob lynchings or bringing in things like motives, trying to deflect the narrative away from what is a horrifically violent crime by trying to bring in possible justifications for it as if there could ever be any justification for a crime like this. During Prime Minister Narendra Modi's first term in office, Hindu mobs offered motives for lynching. Now all the pretenses have gone, warned top Indian Muslim lawmaker Asauddin Oasi. I am pretty much sure that this will continue because BJP and RSS have unleashed a demon which is not going to stop. We will, as a community, will have to live with this. Take the instance of what happened to a taxi driver in Bombay. You know, he was beaten up. So there are so many incidents which are, which are taking place, but I still feel if the BJP and the Prime Minister in particular seriously and sincerely decides they can bring an end to this. Modi's BJP party returned to power with a larger majority than before, but it does not have a single Muslim MP, pointed out author Farah Nakvi. The BJP has a wonderful mandate, 303 members elected in the Lok Sabha, not one of them that can represent the voices, the fears, The third largest Muslim population in the world is not represented by the BJP today. Is that something that the BJP should worry about? The minorities alone should worry about or all of India should worry about? But BJP party spokeswoman Mamta Kale insisted the growing unease was a creation 
of liberal Indians. The whole narrative has been constructed and built very carefully by few pseudo-liberalists who say that uh, the minorities are not safe in India and they are not safe with Modi's led government. Modi ji had spoken very clearly uh, two days back that I am pained and nobody accepts the lynching and we don't uh, approve of lynching and whoever is uh, Im involved in lynching will be given a strict punishment and law will take its own course. This is what the stand which government has taken. And as Hindu fundamentalists grew louder, a Netflix series called Laila reached Indian audiences last month. It runs a similar narrative to the one being played out in Indian parliament led by Modi. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Uh. Mm, right, the time is 17.43 Central African time. Uh, right now though, we're going to be making sure that you know everything that you need to know with regards to what's happening in the economics news. But a quick reminder before we do that, that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a, a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa one lots of things happening with regards to uh, the economics news as well as the sporting news which will be coming up a little bit later on in the show but uh, yeah i just want to uh, remind you that after this we are going to be having the economics news with tracy beamgod hi i'm pulem mulebati the presenter of the albinism report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. And right now we're crossing over to the Money Desk. Here's Tracy Boomgard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Zimbabwe's central bank says individuals and companies hold $1.3 billion in foreign currency accounts. This after the finance minister announced that individuals will be allowed to withdraw cash U.S. dollars from those accounts. Zimbabwe made its interim currency the RTGS dollar, the country's sole legal tender, last Monday. The South African Revenue Services has warned that they're stepping up efforts to detect non-compliance and to enforce prosecution for tax evasion. Announcing the start of the tax season, SARS Commissioner Edward Kizweta says e-filers and Mobi app users can start submitting their returns until the end, of, rather until the 4th of December. Kizweta says those who prefer to file their returns manually can do so from August. The State Capture Commission underway in Johannesburg, South Africa, has heard that a policy where 30% of all procurement at SAA would be set aside for black businesses would not have complied with the law. Former SAA HR head Matulwani Mpje has told the Commission that the SAA board wanted to implement a policy to set aside 30% for BEE. However, the policy had not been approved by Treasury. Mpshe says SAA Board Chair Dudu Miani was very confrontational about the policy and said transformation was key to the national agenda. 15 countries in West Africa say the common currency they plan to adopt next year will be called the ECO. The regional grouping ECOWAS endorsed the name at its meeting in Nigeria. 
Some economists say a common currency for West Africa is unrealistic because Nigeria dominates the regional economy. Indices of the Japan share market rallied after the United States and China agreed to restart trade talks this past weekend during the G20 summit. U.S. President Donald Trump offered concessions including no new tariffs and an easing of restrictions on tech company Huawei in order to reduce tensions with Beijing. China agreed to make unspecified new purchases of U.S. farm products and return to the negotiating table. Speaking through an interpreter, chief economist at Daiichi Life Research Institute in Japan, Yoshikiyo Shimamina, Shimamin, Shimamin explains. <coughs> the U.S. dollar is trading at 358.10 Nigeria Naira, 10.50 Botswana Pula at 101.33 Kenyan Shilling, and a 12.81 Zambian Quacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.84 Brazilian Hail, 63.19 Russian Ruble, 68.83 Indian Rupee, 6.86 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.04 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,392 and platinum at $833 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $66.17 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Right, uh, the time is now 17.49 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the sports desk. Here is Musubiri Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with AFCON news. Three days ago, Kenya faced a fight to stay alive in Group C, and they did it with a 3-0 brave win over Tanzania. Tonight, though, they face a battle to survive in the tournament with a daunting fixture against Africa's top-ranked nation. That is Senegal. Now, kickoff for that match is at 9 p.m. Central African time at the 30 June Stadium in Cairo, Egypt. And Waharamba Stars head coach Sebastian Nige had said Kenya have nothing to lose after notching up only their second win in the history of the tournament. They have everything to gain from getting points against a nation ranked 83 places higher than them in the world. They are number one in Africa. There are so many qualities, not only physically. They are maybe one of the best players in the year this season with Sadio Mane. So uh, we know it would be difficult, but uh, to be able to compete against this kind of team and... Uh, but we have nothing to lose. It's only a pleasure. While Kenya has never beaten Senegal, the two teams have previously met three times, all at the Africa Cup of Nations tournament. Their first meeting was back in 1990, and that ended in a goalless draw. The Taranga Lions then defeated Harambe Stars 3-0 two years later and went on to beat them 3-0 back in 2004 in Tunisia. Well, Kenya had the best defensive record during the qualifiers, but that has since been shaky with stars conceding four goals thus far in the tournament, something Coach Nige is seeking an answer to. It's a team problem, you know, to find the good balance, uh, all to defend, all together at the same time. We work on it. Not enough, visibly, since two games, but the level, it's not the same also. Well, Senegal only need a draw to qualify for the Africa Cup of Nations knockout round and coach Alu Sise believes they are good enough to claim a victory in Cairo tonight. Liverpool's Sadio Mane is yet to make an impact, having only played once against Algeria after missing the opener due to suspension. We have no choice. We have to beat Kenya. 
We have to beat Kenya in order to stay here. While well, uh, Tanzania take on Algeria also at 9 p.m. Central African time at the Al-Salam Stadium in Cairo and another Group C encounter. On to athletics news, the top track and field athletes in the world competed at the 2019 Prefontaine Classic in Oregon, USA on Sunday night. Now, this was one of the biggest track meets and produced some big performances from Kenyans. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports. Beatrice Chipkoach of Kenya, the world record holder, built a comfortable 30-yard lead through 5K and didn't look back during the 3,000 meters steeplechase. She was the only runner in a fast field to break nine minutes running an 8 minutes 55.58 seconds our current world lead despite a fall early in the race Emma Coburn took second place with a time of 9 minutes 04.49 seconds while another Kenyan Haven Kiang came home third behind Coburn in 9 minutes 5.81 seconds Uganda's Joshua Cheptegei ruled the race in two miles race ahead of Kenyan-born American Polo Chelimo and Ethiopia Selemon Barega who finished second and third respectively. And finally in tennis news, South African Kevin Anderson shook off early rounds to clear his first hurdle at Wimbledon with a comprehensive 6-3, 6-4, 2 victory over Pierre Huguet Herbert on the tournament's opening day at the All England Club in London earlier today. The fourth-seeded South African and runner-up to last year's event showed little signs of being inactive, having recently returned from a lengthy elbow injury as he powered his way to 16 aces and an impressive win against the unseated Frenchman. Meanwhile, another South African in the men's singles event, that is Lloyd Harris, will line up against second seed and record Wimbledon winner Marja Federer on Tuesday afternoon. For the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. But from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email, info at channelafrica.co.za, or send us a WhatsApp message, plus 27763003327. Taking us to the top of the hour is DTM with Nani Nani. We'll see you again later. Nani, 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 nani,